Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with purpose-driven development teams for high-performance innovation and productivity. What more could you want? Please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off that shelf. And your host today is me, TC Gill, IT Labs Chief Talking Officer, and I'm speaking from London, UK. And in this episode, we're going to be talking to somebody in the TV and film production space. No, not to talk about turning me into a star, but to look under the covers of an industry we are all entranced by. Creating visual stories which are the staple diet of our entertainment-craving minds. We'll get to learn about this and also some leadership tips from a wonderful tech leader by the name of Stephen Tallamy. So let's not delay. Sound, camera, action. Let's welcome Stephen into the space and share his enlightening stories and knowledge. Welcome, Stephen. Welcome to CTO Confessions Podcast. It's great to be here. How's it going? Very good, thank you. So tell the audience a little bit about yourself. What do you do and who do you work for? Yeah, so I've been in the tech industry for a pretty reasonable amount of time, sort of mostly previously working for larger companies. Uh, So I worked for a company called NDS here in the UK, and they were about... 3,000 employees worldwide then went uh, and got a, that got acquired by Cisco, who are a very big company. And now I've started a new role here at EditShare. So my first time as being a CTO, having previously been a you know, senior technical leader in those uh, roles, my first CTO role at EditShare. Now, EditShare probably people may not know very well as as a, as a company, but effectively what we do is we we build things for the media industry, particularly for the media production industry. So the sort of customers that we would have are people who are uh, maybe working in the film and TV industry, so making big big films, big. TV shows, uh, reality TV, all of these kind of things, but also ad agencies, um, work with education. So, you know, lots of people are using video. Anyone who's basically working in the world of producing video, so not distributing it, but really producing it, creating it with tools like Adobe tools like the Adobe Premiere or you know Avid tools like Media Composer. We we work with with people who are using those tools and we provide two main functions, which is Shared storage, because when you're editing video, you need a lot of storage quite often. If you're thinking maybe a a 4K production, then that's a lot of storage. I mean, a 4K is probably almost a petabyte of storage. So loads and loads of storage you know, you require for these, even if even a TV show, right? A TV show can have a large amount of storage because often we they talk to in in sort of TV terms or in sort of filming terms of like a, a shoot ratio. So how many hours do you actually have to shoot to actually get some footage? So like a documentary could be a a thousand to one. You know, every hour of footage actually took a thousand hours to film, which I'm sure you can appreciate. You must must have watched like some of these nature documentaries, right? Mm. David Attenborough's, all those kind of things. Thousands of hours of footage of probably of, you know, a seal doing nothing until it does something interesting. (laughs) Uh, On those kind of things, that can be a huge amount of of data, even that, you know, um, terabytes of data. So you need, you know, a lot of storage for those things uh, to work. And you need that storage to be accessible by lots of people because you have different roles in that process, right? Different people touching that, ingesting it, you know, marking it up, editing it, color grading it, delivering it. Lots of people need to access that. And so you don't want to be moving around hundreds if not thousands of terabytes of data so yeah. we provide a storage system in the middle yeah i'm sorry, a lot of data i i joke sometimes that uh, civilization will end when we've got so much data we don't know what to do with it we just get all confused and everything collapses but there is a lot of data there isn't there a huge amount of data and you know and it's very bulky as they the as the quality of video has gone up over the years of course the the data has generally gotten bigger of course there are codecs out there that have you know helped us compress but a lot of people want to still record in the raw footage. You know, they take the raw camera and they want to store that somewhere, and that can be a lot of, a lot of data. Yeah. Um, so storage is one part. Um, 
And the other part is what we call media management or media asset management. And this is really about providing the workflow that sits on top of that storage to take people through those stages. And so, um, you know, as things come in from the cameras, it can ingest that. It maybe makes a, a copy of it in a lower resolution so that someone can view it in a web browser or view it remotely. Um, it may or then be handed over to an assistant editor, somebody who might tag up stuff. So if you think maybe about a, a reality television show, something uh, like Love Island or one of these shows, where they do a lot of filming on an island, lots and lots of cameras, but only some section of it is interesting. And so part of the media management will be going and finding those interesting arguments or those elements of the show and, and sort of cor correlating that to be, okay, these are candidates for the editor. And then, then it gets passed on to the editor who is actually going to create the story, you know, decide how things are going to work. There may well have obviously been some script even in a reality TV show. Yeah. Re inverted quotes right and then then that gets then passed on to the color team and all the other teams and so the media asset management provides the tools to allow you to automate some of those things there's a lot of manual work that you can automate so there's an automation engine in there and it really then helps people uh you know manage that and um so to sort of wrap all that up what does edit share do well we simplify storytelling that is our reason for existence. That was, you know, that is why we go out there into the world. And the things that we are trying to do is simplify the storytelling process. Um, and you will see, you know, th those tools are part of that, right? There's still obviously other tools that people use, like their Adobe Premiere, or they'll use their, you know, uh, DaVinci Resolve or other different applications. But at the heart of it, we're trying to simplify that whole process because it gets complicated, right? And guess what? It got very complicated in the last year. Um, you know, a lot of productions, it got much more complicated for the X Factor or for a movie to go and make it or, or even, you know, advertising and other things where it's got things have gotten a lot more complicated because people couldn't be in their, you know, nice editing suites and their nice, you know, mm. studio. They had to work from home. They had to use Zoom. They had to use other tools to help them try continue to to make you know video content. Um, and so, we've been looking at many ways in which we, as EditShare, over the last year and obviously prior to that, can just simplify that for people, so that all those things that get in the way of telling a story, the of you to just sort of we ideally want those to be transparent so the process of, of creating films it's not an industry that i work in personally but i can i can imagine that it's actually uh there's a lot of as you mentioned the manual task it's it's allowing people that producing these kind of programs to, to focus on the creativity side of it as opposed to the manual kind of drudgery you know that monotony of uh, moving things around and storing and getting hold of it absolutely and what's been very exciting over the last you know 10 years or so is that this technology is now available to so many more people, right? It is easy, you know, for $300 a month, uh, sorry, $300 a year, you can get an Adobe um, subscription that gives you all of the tools, you know, the, the After Effects tools to create special effects, to build beautiful graphics, to edit things together. In the past, that would have cost you thousands of, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of custom hardware and custom things to do all this work and now you can run it on a modestly specced pc or or mac and use these tools and so what is very exciting certainly from my perspective about what we're doing and if we simplify storytelling is it opens up a diversity of different storytellers that are out there that maybe their stories they've not been able to tell because they haven't had the tools mm. uh, to they want to do and so for me it's a very exciting moment in history um because i mean storytelling has been around forever right the caveman drew the door drawings on on the wall they weren't very portable so then people invented <laughs> books yeah and film came along and video came along and that provided a really exciting media but they to create a film was still a lot of things now i think creating an entire feature length film is something that somebody can do with a very minimal you know uh, budget if they want to or certainly a short film yeah uh, but then it's all about the storytelling you know what is a story a story is there to design and, and evoke an emotion from someone and, and teach them or, or 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 one of these kind of areas and i think that's really important if that's what they're focused on is the story they want to do not all the logistics of 
getting these files from A to B and making sure it works in the right formats if that's not what they're thinking about. Because uh, so, some people say that a story, in terms of video form, a story is in sort of three pieces, right? The first piece is what you write down. You write a script or you plan out the reality show, the things that are going to happen. There's Whatever your story is in an ad, in an ad it will be in a storyboard of what the ad is going to be, whatever your story is. So that one third of the story is that is what's written, but then another third of it is actually what's captured, what the actors do, or what the you know the interviewer or the interviewee does, or however it works. So one third of that story is then told through what is captured, what is performed, and then the last third is what is edited. How does it get edited? And you'll certainly know um, that in the world of news somebody can edit and tell a story from a short number of clips that may not actually be the whole picture mm. but they can tell a story they want to tell they want to tell a story of poverty or they want to tell a, a story of um you know you know uh, election victory and they can pick certain parts of those other parts and so the editing part is a really key you know that post-production part is a key part of the storytelling um and, you know, in terms of my passion, well, why do I get out of bed in the morning? What do I enjoy? What do I love? Um, I love storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a musician. I'm a composer. I write music. I've written music for film. Um, it's something I love doing. I love telling stories. And um, and so, you know, thinking about music, well, just try watching Jaws with the music off. It's not really very scary. <laughs> until no. And so all those ingredients in that last third that goes in the post-production again you know what might have been captured by the camera might have looked bright and and, and beautiful um, but actually you wanted to look dark and gloomy well then you add color effects to it you add mood to it you add atmosphere you add sound you add all these other elements and so you know again there's a lot of pieces that allow you to create a story in that that final third mm. uh, so we, we we live in that space of helping people with that final third of the story. Fascinating. Because I, I don't work in the industry, I'm finding it really interesting as the kind of the three phases. You know, we all know that things are written and they're performed, but the editing, I, know, I don't think I really kind of appreciated the, the power of that final kind of phase because you can change your perspective, you know, and, uh, and, and actually give the... Uh, I guess it's, you know, like when somebody says something, you can finish the way in which you're saying something with a certain tonality or or uh, uh, speed. And that, that's what this is. It's kind of telling that, um, giving it a tone, you know? I don't know. Right. Absolutely. And and if you think about um, some of these really powerful stories that you've, um, you've, you've seen, how much of that was actually created by this invisible team, right? There's the, you, you see the actors, right? You see the, the thing, but there's this entire crew that's going on behind um, that, that's editing, um, editing or bringing it together, all the pieces that allow it to be something more than, you know, a few uh, well-paid people in front of green screens into, you know, a full Marvel cinematic experience. Um, there's a, an editor, filmer, shoemaker. Uh, she works, basically, she's been the editor uh, for the entire um, history of Martin Scorsese's films. So actually, the reason why those films are so disturbing is is actually her. Wow. <laughs> she makes yeah. them so disturbing. Um, you know, he he's obviously can create them, but, you know, if you've ever watched a Martin Scorsese, they have a very specific feel and pace, and that's all the edit, and that's her. She is the person who's part that key part, and that's why he's worked with her all this time because she can create the story he wants in the edit. I'm really interested in the kind of technology side of it because obviously there's, you know, as you say, the different uh, phases of the creation of the story. Um, but but I'm still boggled by this the literal size of data that you're having to deal with. I mean, how, what's that like from a technology perspective? Yeah, well, it's 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 very different to maybe your traditional big data problem. So big data is actually just lots of small data, right? I, it's usually lots and lots of analytics, right? It's lots of like data that's come from user devices and stuff. So overall, it beca can become petabytes of data, but it's all little small pieces. And so it requires you know storage and technology that's tuned around this. Well, actually, our big Big data is like chunky data. Either the source stuff is big files that are moving around, mm. and so we have to optimize the file system so that it can work with these very big files. 
Uh, it can chunk them up and spread them across multiple servers because, you know, if you're talking about a 4K resolution, the bandwidth required can often be more than an individual server can serve out, especially if you've got multiple editors working on it. And, you know, if you've never seen an editorial timeline, you know, the number of different things that are streaming at the same time, because you'll have the current scene, you know, the different camera angles, maybe some overlay things, they're all getting streamed off that storage. And so the technology requires us to have a clustered file system where we can spread the data across multiple servers so that they, the storage is spread out, the, the bandwidth is spread out. You know, the technology from the storage perspective really requires you to you know, do that, which is you know, what we use for our on-prem, you know, our, our sort of hardware-based solutions where you know, we will take some off-the-shelf HB-based hardware and you know, you know, standard disks, we're not doing anything special there, but we then add our software on top of that to create this clustered uh, system. But then, of course, that's a perfect design for the cloud as well, right? Just keep adding more virtual machines and more storage, and you continue to be able to scale out your thing. But you can also then contract it, which is obviously the power of a cloud environment, is that if you think about a production, it might start off with not very much, needing to be stored and then suddenly you need loads of stuff and then you don't need very much again and so the cloud has a really exciting place uh, in this industry it's not a place where the industry has been using a cloud to a lot of extent for very long and there's been some missing ingredients where maybe distribution part of video so like your traditional players like Sky in the UK or Comcast in the US, they've moved a lot of their distribution to the cloud. But obviously, you've got the new players like Netflix and Disney Plus and those. Those are all cloud-based solutions. Um, so that part of the industry has already basically said, yeah, we're in the cloud. And even Sky today, who are a satellite provider in the UK, they're not really a satellite provider. In fact, they don't say that. We're, they're, they're a distributor. And if they were to distribute everything over broadband or some other mechanism, they'd be happy to do that. And mm. that's what they're doing. If you, and you'll see that around the world, where satellite has been a good distribution for uh, getting to a lot of people, very a lot of material. People want on demand. They want those experiences. And so that part of the industry has moved. And this part is the part that's still in transit and it comes back to some of those things as i said before you know every hour of footage that has to go into the cloud to be delivered for netflix was a thousand hours of footage and probably at a much higher resolution than than netflix are using i mean some people are going out there and recording in 8k right so you might have a 4k tv at home now maybe but they're filming in 8k and even though they it might be delivered at 4k the advantage of 8k is it means that they can actually zoom in the picture they can they can take the top left hand side of that and that's still 4k resolution and then they can actually do a panning shot so instead of having to move the camera anymore they leave the camera still and they can pan within that 8k picture because there's enough pixels there mm. uh, for them to do that and so they can do a lot of special you know effects that you couldn't ever do with a lens or with a with a camera um in that environment and then of course long comes augmented reality and add adult onto that so there's there's a lot of very exciting things but it does make transition to the cloud difficult because even getting that amount of footage into the cloud is hard you know it's okay i don't know you know what how you feel about uploading uh, a terabyte of data it takes a little bit of time from yeah. your home right yeah if you thought about okay that's actually going to be 100 terabytes every single day that's you know that takes a long time and that's where um where edit shares trying to simplify things until we get to the point where that bandwidth is not a problem yeah. is by providing a hybrid solution so that people can maybe have the high resolution staying locally to them but maybe a low resolution version of that goes into the cloud and then people can still edit with that low resolution they can still continue to use that make the same decisions yeah. and then when to rendering they can come back to the high resolution without having to put it into the cloud mm -hmm. um, so there's a there's a lot of exciting things that you know this type of technology can enable as people transition to the cloud but you're right it's a it's a lot of data and you know uh, our, our, our customers you know really rely on that you know high throughput high bandwidth type of things mm -hmm.
yeah, brilliant. I, and the technology solution seems kind of fascinating. I, again, it's not something, you know, you just think you've got a cloud service over there, kind of bung, bung the data up on, on that, you know. But as, as you say, the bandwidth is the, is the uh, bandwidth to and from these services is limited and, and therefore you need to solve it. Um, the other aspect, actually, I'm curious around what happens once the film is produced because you've got all these little snippets and edits and, and what have you. You know, I, I like going back to our work and I see different versions of what I was working on. So what happens at the end of the cycle of the storytelling and it's being distributed? Does it get archived off or do they just somebody comes along and does a control A and the delete? <laughs> it can always get archived off, um, uh, often for insurance reasons as much as anything else, because, you know, if the actual, you know, rendered film was ever lost, then they need to be able to go back to that. And so you and you might decide to use different um, types of archiving for the different stuff. So there might be a, a whole set of material that was used in the film and a whole set that just was never used. That the unused footage, you know, the cutting room floor um, type stuff might just go into a deep archive that no one ever really bothers with. Mm. And that deep could be the you know delete button but it, it may just go into you know tape drives or you know in 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 a cloud environment like a you know glacier deep storage it's something that's uh no one's ever going to really really look look at again unless there's a real you know oh do you remember that time when we shot you know the Taj Mahal in you know in during the the global pandemic and everyone was wearing masks wouldn't that be a good shot to use yeah. in my film so uh instead of going back and reshooting people wearing masks or something like that so there might be those occasions so your leadership uh, in this kind of world of uh, this technology and what have you what, how would you going to describe your leadership style what, what's worked for you what hasn't worked for you in the past yeah so i've always been um sort of an individual con contributor so i've not been a line manager um for people um which might be slightly different you know different ctos sometimes have line management responsibilities sometimes the cto of a company might also be the vp of engineering as we call it so we actually talk about the two different roles but they might actually be the head of all the engineering teams and you know people directly report into them through uh, management line so that i don't i've not worked in that mode i've always been an individual contributor and what that means is that what I have to do in my leadership style is work through uh, through influence rather than mandate, right? So coming down to you know a leadership style, I can't just sort of drum my hands on the table and say you work for me, <laughs> do as I say, because nobody does work for me, um, and that has made me into the type of leader that has a different side to it. They don't, I don't lean on some hierarchy to make something happen. Um, I lean on other skills that are more around the negotiation, the understanding, the ability to resolve conflicts, the ability to do those things in a way that doesn't involve a hierarchy. And so that my leadership style is very much more around that um, uh, sort of more influence side of uh, uh, influence, inspire, set a vision, you know, Coming back to my desire to tell stories, I enjoy to set a vision for how things need to be and then allow the teams to kind of work into that vision and then give the teams an opportunity to work with me to get feedback so that, you know, in Agile and any of these types of things, feedback loops are great, right? And for me, there's a feedback loop with the engineering teams when I go and spend time with them and they tell me what they're working on and then I can tell them, you know, my feedback on it. But I'm getting a, a feedback from, you know, oh yeah, this vision that I had, I need to adjust that vision a little bit. I need to rethink it because what they're telling me is actually there's something new that we hadn't really explored until we started building the technology part of it. Um, but obviously also as a senior leader of EditShare, I'm interacting with all the other uh, departments as well so i'm working with the marketing team i'm working with the sales team i'm working obviously with the ceo i'm working with um the product teams so i need to work with all levels of the organization and work across um the, the different teams and i really enjoy doing that that's something for me from my leadership um star i enjoy going from place to place and talking to the different teams and and, and sort of working at different levels brilliant love it that's um, that's great i and um, I guess the skill that you've learned around being able to work with the different aspects of the business, has that been a challenge? And what if uh, and what tips would you give for people out there that are going to work cross-functioning like this as a leader? I think the most important thing is to listen. Because 
it's very easy to talk and you know i like talking and i enjoy it um but i think you need to hear what people are saying and you need to properly listen to them and not bring your you know your own viewpoint um so something that i used to always do uh in the past which i've stopped doing was i always felt as if i had to give my viewpoint because I was there and I was the senior leader or one of the senior leaders, senior person in the room or, or even, you know, earlier in my career when I was trying to grow, climb the ladder, I felt that if my, my opinion was shown in the meeting, then that wouldn't, would be good for me in my progress. But it wasn't necessarily good for the, what was going on, but it was something I felt I had to do. Um, and I've learned to stop doing that and listen um, and wait. You know, it's very easy, especially if you... Um, are you know a senior more of a senior technical leader um it's very easy if you've already seen a bunch of things that someone's talked about to sort of jump in, yeah we've done all that before here's the answer um very easy to do that um and i'm quite a lateral thinker as well so i can jump you know laterally to an answer very quickly but if i don't listen then i might be jumping in the wrong direction i might be doing the wrong thing and i may also not be working very well for that personality type who may need to take the analytical analytical steps to the answer. They need to go through the processing so that they can feel confident in the answer. And so allowing them and asking them questions and listening allows me to be a better better leader. So Stephen, coming back to the, uh, the business aspect of things, you, you mentioned something really interesting off podcast, which was riding the elevator. Tell the audience a little bit about that. That's really interesting. Yeah, so one of the skills that is really important um, within tech leaders um, or any leader is this ability to be able to understand at what level they need to have a conversation, um, where they are. So I might be one moment getting off the elevator um, and on that level, it's it's all the engineering team and we're going to have a real deep techie conversation. And I really value those. I mean, I'm a technologist. I enjoy coding. I still write code myself. So I enjoy having those conversations at a detailed level. And then the next minute I will get back in the elevator, go up many floors and I'm talking to the CEO of my company or I might be talking to, you know, the uh, CEO of another company or a customer or a video editor. Um, I might be talking to different people, right? Um, and so understanding when you, when I get out of that elevator, how to reframe the conversation that I'm having, reframe what I've been saying to fit that audience, to fit who's there, who's on the other side of that lift. And what is really important is to, you know, gauge it very quickly. Okay. I'm in this zone. I need to take these messages. And I picked up some really useful messages on the you know engineers floor right i picked up some really important stuff but i'm not going to speak in you know this was some optimization in node.js to make something happen i'm not going to talk in those terminologies but i am going to take something that says uh, to the customer let's say i'm talking to a customer on the customer level i can talk to them about um, how we are optimizing our solution to solve their problem and build trust in them and say, well, you know, why, how do I talk to a customer about agile processes? Well, I will talk to them about, well, this, this is always getting better, right? You're buying something from us that's not just a one-time purchase that, you know, it does one thing and, and stops working uh, for you every time we release software is going to get better bugs will get fixed and new features will come and we need to give you trust that we can do that in a way that is solid so i may start saying well in my engineering teams we're working on benchmark testing and we're working on all these automated testing things to give you confidence that every time i give you software every time you receive a new release it is going to fit a really high standard of quality so taking that message in the elevator and what's really valuable is as you ride the elevator, you get that sort of social butterfly effect as well, because you yourself sort of can hear little messages from different parts of the organization and you can take them and repackage them for somebody else. So if I am talking to, um, say, Jackie, who's our head of people operations, I can talk to her about something that is going on in the sales team that is, you know, impacting the way the engineers are working, which is then causing some friction that we could build some training program around, or we could build some opportunity around some growth experience for people. And so taking those little elements and riding the elevator from those is really 
useful. And sometimes you might get out of the elevator and you're on, you know, the roof of the building and it's cocktail hour and everybody <laughs> is. There. Yeah. And, and then again, you need to understand, well, how do I now communicate to all these people? I know all of them individually and I know how I would be describing this to the engineers, but how do I make sure I can also still make this interesting to the sales team? How do I come up with something that's cohesive that, takes all of those different things that I got off at the individual layers of the organization and take them to, you know, the top floor where everyone is present or take it to another building with, you know, customers in it and, and kind of talk about it. So that's, for me, is a really um, important soft skill to build because you need to obviously have those tech skills. If you're going to be a tech leader, you need the tech skills to have the conversation. And if you don't keep up with it, um, it can be hard to get the detail because the engineer will be thinking, you know, at a lower level, they'll be thinking specifically about what they're working on and they'll be hyper-focused on that thing. And you need to be able to at least join them in their conversation. You might not know all the details, but you can join them and, and then take away from that what you need to take to the next level. I love that. Yeah, this uh, it is interesting, actually, the kind of different communication uh, styles and and de- levels of detail that you need. So yeah, I think I think communication skills and especially riding the elevator for technology leaders like yourself to be able to navigate those multiple levels is really important. So thank you for sharing that. And a good leader would, you know, invite someone in the elevator with them as well, on so that they can come with them, right? Because it's great to be able to do it yourself. But if I can take somebody from a from from sales or from, you know, engineering and, and take them somewhere else, take them into a customer or take them somewhere else. They get an opportunity to ride along in the elevator and they may not know exactly what to do there, but they come along for the ride and, and they get out on that level and they can see how I communicate to them and go, oh, so that's why you're always talking about that thing because that's the way you have to talk to the customer about it or, yeah. to, the, or to the engineer. That's why you're saying those things in that fluffy speak is because that's what the cus- the customer needs that part. And then you add details that helps with the customer, but that fluffy speak is probably the, the bit that's joining the pieces yes. together. A good leader will also take people in the elevator with them as well. Brilliant. I love this. And of course, then there's another dimensional tap. There's the, the, the types of people, you know, so we've got, uh, you know, diversity, uh, different types of thinking, gender, Etc. Uh, Etc. Et which adds another, yes, another dimension onto the kind of communication. Uh, uh, well, I wouldn't call it a puzzle, but challenge. You know, because we, we want to be able to communicate well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we we really believe in diversity, and we have a, uh, a diversity inclusion group. We're called they're called the Jedi. <laughs> We have an entire team that you know have, have built up over this last uh, year um, to to really focus on this topic, and we have been doing these uncomfortable conversations every month. We have an uncomfortable conversation on a particular topic. So we've talked about autism. Um, we're we're going to, about to talk about Islamophobia. Um, so we're going to actually have these conversations. Um, that can be a little bit uncomfortable and difficult for people to have, but we need to be able to have them so that, you know, coming back to an autistic conversation, you know, we went through and we looked at our job specs and we looked at our vision and the way in which we communicate. And um, if you take some of what we say, literally, I mean, we all use these speak, like we dig deep. Does that mean that everyone at Edit Share has a shovel out and they're going out and, you know, if you take it very literally, which an autistic person might do at first sight, uh, they go, well, I don't really want to work in construction, you know, who this yeah. Edit Share are, right? And so it's just being really aware of, and, and until you have these conversations, these conversations about the different diverse elements of what people are going through, then it can be really difficult to be fully inclusive. And so we really encourage the conversation inside the the company. We're not a large company. We're doing sort of maybe large company style things. I would expect this of a Cisco. I would expect this of a Microsoft or an an Amazon Web Services. So for a company that's around 140 employees worldwide, it's really great that we are doing these activities. We've got... um, in a month's time, we've got a, a hackathon uh, with um, an organization called Coding Black Females, uh, which is based in the UK, but also has some representation around the world. And it's really to uh, provide, you know, a, they provide themselves a community where they have like-minded people that they can have 
um, people they can look up to and people that they can sort of see themselves in. And then we, what we can do is just support that and we can come in and create these events um, and help them, you know, contextualize what they're doing into a workplace and, and see that we care. You know, it's no good for me to go in and have that conversation and say, well, we don't really care about you know diversity in our con- in our company we honestly do and that means that we can then you know by doing that that allows us to go and open up a door and, and show people well actually you know there's a said it share company out there and you know there's a good place for a black female to come and work at right it's there are it's a place that cares about that and wants to do something about fixing it because we're not perfect you know the tech industry you know is predominantly white male still it still is mm-hmm. um and it has been for a long time and you know we need to to fix that is a long process you know and it starts from a young age supporting you know schools and and girls in schools and you know uh, different nationalities it comes right through you know it's a it's a systemic thing that needs to be fixed and you can't fix it all at once but if everybody's conscious about it and having those conversations i think that will help. So, Stephen, here's another one for you, a, a great topic that we've kind of spoke around offline, which is around the spectrum of tech leaders. There's lots of names and abbreviations and titles and what have you. Help me understand or help the audience understand what they mean and in different contexts. Yeah, so they can mean, you know, a CTO or a VP of engineering or these things can mean all sorts of um, different things uh, and different companies. Um in the world of Cisco, for example, then a CTO, they don't have one CTO, they have lots of CTOs. And actually quite a lot of their CTOs are very sales oriented in that their job is to turn up to the customer and provide a you know, high level of technical leadership, but they aren't necessarily the person who's you know, directing the engineering team specifically, they're representing them, but they're not actually directing them. Mm. Um, within the company um, whereas in a small company the CTO might actually also have everyone working for them uh, edit share the way that uh, things work is we have um, we have a VP of engineering so we have the CTO and then we have a VP of uh, product right so the VP of, of product uh, is really well we see that as like a holy trinity these three because what we can do amongst the three of us is that we can do the sort of what are we going to build? How are we going to build it, and when are we going to build it? Right, um, and uh, and that's we amongst us we can bring to the table the different parts. So, what what the VP of engineering will bring to the table is like I've got this team. These are their skills. This is their current backlog. This is what they're working on. These are this is the technical debt that we've got in the you know that we've still got to do. And if you ask me to do a new thing, you know I've still got debt that I need to pay down. And it might take certain things longer um uh, so they can focus on on that side of things the cto can kind of bring in a more of a how are we going to go about doing this um focus again not to say the vp of engineering wouldn't won't have an opinion there they certainly will likely have an opinion but they can sort of come in and give the architectural direction or the you know the framework of how we're going to go about building these things and and you know the cto may have spent maybe more time talking say to a customer when we when i talk to a customer i'm talking to them about vision and roadmap and their futures and stuff whereas when the vp of engineering might talk to a customer he's usually getting pulled in on a customer small support environment they go well can you help me get my system back online because i deleted all of my media accidentally and can you help me out with that um and so they, their their perspective will be slightly different um and then the the vp of product um will come in saying well this is you know when we can do it this is the stage this is you know the roadmap this is how things are going to get staged and these are the market influences that or you know we we commit if we do this then this is the market we can go for we have these customer commitments in the pipeline that we've said we were going to do and so that those that triad actually works really well and i find that triad actually works very well in different levels of the organization as as well if you go down to a scrum team you sort of see the same type of triad format forming that you would have a product owner that's representing the sort of backlog and the, the prioritization, right? And then you might have um, like the tech lead or, or the architect, rec- you know, representing the how you're going to the, do that. And then you might actually have the line manager who's, you know, 
or the you know the the engineering manager who's kind of got the people working for them and can allocate and build the, their their you know their team up and allocate training and those things and again so that that trinity can be really powerful if you replicate it throughout the organization mm-hmm. you see it strong at the top uh, but then you see it strong at different levels of the organization and i found that has been a really uh, useful way of thinking about the those roles a different way so if you think well what does the vp of you know what does the cto do well they're a bit like the tech lead from a scrum team they're like the tech lead or the architect but for the entire organization mm. uh, and if you what does the vp of engineering do well they're a bit like the engineering manager of that scrum scrum team or the scrum master depending on the way you run it and what does the vp of product do well they're a bit like the product owner um and so it's 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 a really easy way of kind of taking yeah different contexts and say well that's they're doing that at a different level and they might be doing that you know with more of an external focus as well as an an internal focus yeah fascinating in fact i have to mention the fact that i am a cto of sorts i'm a cto with a little c a chief talking officer as uh, (laughs) as mentioned i've always wanted to be uh, a chief technology officer cto but i managed it in a roundabout way so thank you for that advice and clearing up it's it's great great to hear this what i love also about what you mentioned here about these kind of like trios this holy trinity of of people is is that it's it's like a fractal it's a repeating pattern it starts off at the very micro you know the kind of cold face but it can actually work its way up and you get that kind of powerful um triangle of uh of communication you know to kind of create better outcomes and always, you know, a triangle, if you think about it, if you lose one part of it, the triangle becomes unstable. A triangle is very rigid. It's a great yes. block, right? It's very rigid. If you lose one part of it, then the whole thing kind of falls apart. It disappears. So it's every person in that triangle is playing a key role um, without them pulling their weight. So they feel a responsibility. You know, if you if you go out into a, you know, a rectangle or other shapes with more people, then people start to lose... Uh, responsibility and so they feel like they cannot do the thing they're doing a bit um, whereas if you keep it at three um, that seems to be a really good number it feels yeah. powerful you know it's it's a great it's a great kind of a, a strong relationship strong communication and uh, collaboration which is a you want diversity in as well if you can yeah in that triangle then that's going to permeate through the organization permeate into this into the different teams so look for a diversity of opinion and diversity of background in those roles brilliant so Stephen, as we come towards this closing arc of our podcast and our time together i just want to ask you some uh, questions about you again you know so what kind of things as a leader keep you up at night as a tech leader yeah for me um as a tech leader the thing that keeps me up at night is how do I do more with less? I mean, we are a smallish company, and so our amount of resource that we have is limited, and we can't suddenly balloon it out and 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 have a very large engineering team um, at our hands. So, what keeps me up at night is like I'm, you know, I enjoy inventing and coming up with new ideas. I've got loads of patents, and you know, always got these great ideas. But what keeps me up at night is how do I make those a reality? without it just being me doing all the work, which of course I can do some of the work and I can help with that. So what keeps me up at light is is how do I make it possible for us to keep driving innovation inside of the company, continue to drive it, when you still have the technical debt to get rid of and you still have, you know, things that are maintenance and things that are, you know, the core product you're building today. You need to be able to build the core product you have today, but you always need to be taking stuff and putting it into what I call the, you know, people call the invent zone, right? The invent zone is where you go and you shine a light down some tunnels and you go, well, that one's no good and that one's good, um, but it's quite hard to go down. And there's one that we can actually you do something with um, and so making space for that and, and and finding ways in which you can continue to have that whilst you know that a lot of people are in the trenches and they're sort of digging themselves out of out of a hole or dealing with some sort of real you know customer issue or they're building the current product and adding features to the current product they don't always have the time to do those other things and so for me that's the thing that keeps me up at night. It's like, how do I help help the organization have that? So, you know, I'm very passionate about running hackathons. Uh, so the whole, you know, company will, you know, down tools for a day and people will will entirely work in the invent zone. How do they think of something they haven't been doing, right? What 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 thing would make, could make some difference? And, and the output of that hackathon could be, 
well, that wasn't a good idea. And that's the right <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah. Perfectly fine to fail. I mean, fail fast. A hackathon is a great way to do that because you can do a, a lot in a in a small period of time. Everyone's focused on that one thing in a team. You know, you build your teams. You might work with different people, and you focus on one thing for an entire day. But it gets you so much out because you don't have the interruptions. You know, email is off. You know, no Zoom meetings, thankfully, no other things, and so that just just removing all those general distractions. And those, you know, or story points and other things that we had to do to run the machine, we take all of those out the out of the picture, and bring in a different way of thinking for a, at least a day, you know, a day, and give people an ability to communicate that out. The most important thing I always look out of the out of the hackathon is what can someone communicate what they did. So we always require people to put together a quick demo video at the end of it, and the, that can be just join a Zoom meeting, hit record, and just show somebody. But it, it also builds skills in that area because mm. I say, well, you can only you, your video can only be five to ten minutes, so you can't do the engineering deep dive for you know an hour talking about all the nerdy details of what you did that day. You need to give me, you know, what have you achieved? What have you thought about? And what's the outcome? And in fact, we then have external judges take those videos and and give feedback on them and, and give an, an, an input on like, well, what, you know, what more could we do with this idea? And did they communicate their idea well? And so for me, that's an example of how we can continue to drive innovation uh, whilst continuing to do the, you know, the, the standard operating stuff that, you know, is important as well. Any books that you recommend? That, that have been game changers for you? Yeah, so I, I'm going to recommend two books uh, to you. One of them is The Phoenix Project. I love The Phoenix Project book, absolutely 100%. And they've got a new, there was a new one that came out recently as well, a sequel to it, which I, I've started reading and hadn't quite finished. Um, but I find those that book is really uh, a useful illustration because it is storytelling, right? It's told as a novel. It's, so I love that they told it as a story, but it tells you about technology and it tells you about how to go through a transition. Everyone, Everyone's company is in a transition. Ours is, is certainly in a big transition of changing uh, the way we work. And that story is really, really uh, powerful. For a leadership book, uh, a book that we... Um, User edit share is called The Advantage um, by Patrick Lencioni. Mm. Um, so if you're thinking about being a, a leader, reading this book is a really useful way to understand how you can work as a playbook for a team. And so we follow this playbook um, a lot uh, in terms of the, the senior leadership uh, team. Um, we have what we call a rally cry, which is described in the book. So a rally cry is what is the most important thing we should be doing right now? Right, There's a lot of things we need to do, but right now for the next three months, what is the most important thing? So you can imagine what that looked like in when, as soon as COVID hit, we had to throw away the previous rally cry because the world had just changed yeah. and everything changed and all our employees are suddenly working from home and and everything else so our rally cry at that moment at moment in time was to be able to adapt to the covid situation right and to adapt make sure our employees were safe make sure that we could transact our business make sure that we could um you know those customers help and support our customers that were dealing with this tricky situation of suddenly finding their productions were now completely remote and so our rally cry is part of this uh, this book, The Advantage, along with a number of other things. So as a as a leadership book, I would recommend this, and then The Phoenix Project as a technology book. But there's a lot of leadership in that book as well. Yeah, the excellent. Two great books. I've not read The Advantage myself. I've read some of his other stuff, you know, The Five Dysfunctions, that kind of classic uh, yep. book. And we, we uh, talk about that quite a lot in within IT Labs. But uh, yeah, thank you for sharing those. And that's inspired me to, to yep. get The Advantage out and take advantage of it, you know pardon the pun um and finally your key takeaway to the uh, men and women tech leaders out there what would be the one gift parting gift you would give them i would say just coming back to the elevator find find your elevator and find ways to ride that elevator even if you're a little unsure you know sometimes you might be hitting you know the basement uh level and you're unsure what it's going to be like there or you're going to go up to the you know the top level just find find ways in which you can do that as as much and as often as possible because it will make you and the the people you work with 
so much better in terms of you as a leader, but your impact and your ability to help other people, um, which is, you know, what a leader is there to do. Right? They're not there to dictate. They're there to help and support. So find a way to get in the elevator. And if you haven't gone to, you know, floor nine, get off on floor nine and go and talk to some people about what they're doing. Um, and if you are a bit unsure about it, find someone to get in the elevator with you. Yeah. Brilliant. And on that note, thank you very much, Stephen. It's been wonderful listening to you. I've learned loads about the uh, the film industry, storytelling, and uh, hopefully I'll be able to get a really nice story out of this podcast. So thank you for your time. Absolutely. Cheers. Well, 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 well. Wasn't that enlightening? I learned so much from the session with Stephen Tallamy. I never realised how important the third phase of production, the editing, was for creating a great story. And I wasn't aware of the challenges this industry faces in the data space. Especially now, as many orgs and people have gone from studio working to remote working. The art and elegance of storytelling. I have a fuller and deeper appreciation of this skill now. And also the art of creating the tech that simplifies this whole process and makes it easier. So, what were your key takeaways from the podcast? These were mine. My first key takeaway was the demands of the TV and film production industry and how EditShare is providing numerous artful, elegant solutions for simplifying the storytelling process through remote editing. My second key takeaway was the discussion around the spectrum of tech leaders, clarity on the tech leadership names. I think this is really important. My third key takeaway is riding the elevator, i.e. communication skills for the organisation spectrum of people. Some of us do this naturally. But some of us also need guidance and this analogy about riding the elevator was really impressive for me. Fourthly and finally, look out for the artists that are editing the films and the TV productions. For me now, they are the unsung heroes in an art we all consume. So thank you, Stephen. Thank you for your time. Thanks for sharing your wonderful tips and letting me and the audience shine a light into a fascinating industry. May EditShare continue to make the whole process easier from processing the mega data pool, editing and the production, making it all easier and easier end to end. Thank you again, Stephen. And finally, remember to subscribe to CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter, where you get regular tech articles and invites to the IT Labs webinar series. URLs for this can be found at the bottom of this page. We are consistently creating material to create, nurture and support a community of tech leaders. And of course, if you want to know more about IT Lab services, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. As mentioned in the intro, please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing agility, high-performing teams off that shelf with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. Well, that's all, folks. Look after each other and keep safe. Wishing you all a good day or evening, wherever you are in the world, from all of us here at IT Labs. Live long, live well and prosper. Until we meet again on the next CTO Confessions podcast.